His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. listening to his and hers horror my name is tia and i'm david and welcome to season four everybody yay uh if this is your first time with us welcome mm-hmm. david and i are a married couple yes and we do a podcast together Ta-da! as you can see and have somehow managed not to irritate the hell out of each other while we discuss horror every week yeah uh and if you've been with us since the beginning welcome back yeah uh and god's bless you because right. Uh, we did not know what we were doing in the beginning, so if you've been with us since then, more power to you. You've watched the growth. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is the beginning of our fourth season. We started doing this during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because I was furloughed and going stir-crazy, and every other day was considering a new expensive hobby. (laughs) Fair. And we had already been planning on doing a podcast for a while, and we eventually, David just said, fuck it, Tia needs something to distract her. I already had, like, the bare bones gear to do it, so mm-hmm. figured why not try. Yeah. So before we get into the meat of this episode, mm. I do want to go ahead and take care of a couple of housekeeping things. Yeah. So since this is the start of a new season, we just kind of decided that this would be a good time to make some changes to the show. Don't panic. We're not going anywhere. Right. It's nothing too major. It's just a couple of things that we're revamping to kind of make the show better and some quality of life improvements for us. And you, in a way. Right. So here are the changes that we're making going forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one, we have decided that we will shift to a bi-weekly release schedule. With both of us working full-time jobs and releasing an episode every week, it was starting to be kind of draining. Mm -hmm. Not having a free weekend, basically ever, was starting to weigh on our mental health. And whenever we had to take a break, we felt guilty. Yeah. Because we were like, oh, we're letting people down. And, you know, they expect, you know, our lo- the people who have been loyal to us for the longest time, they expect us to have a product every week. And so every time we were like, we need a break and didn't release, we felt bad. So going forward to kind of mitigate that, uh, we are going to be releasing every other Wednesday, mm-hmm. starting with you know, this episode. So right. the our first episode of the bi-weekly schedule is today. Well, it will be the release date is May 24th. Right. So then it'll be every other week after that. Uh, we are also going to be bringing back This Week in Horror. Yes. I um, missed it. I, I didn't realize how much you missed it. But the thing is, we with us releasing an episode every week, particularly during the pandemic when, you know, movies weren't really being made and stuff wasn't really coming out. There wasn't often a lot of horror news to report on. Right. But with shifting to a bi-weekly schedule, there should theoretically be at least something, like one or two pieces of, of horror-related news to report on. Yeah, news, trivia, something. Right. Well, and 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 you can say trivia. So in the in the instance that there is no news somehow, 
which granted there is currently a writer strike going on and I know SAG-AFTRA is voting to strike as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how that is going to affect things. Um, but so going forward in the event that there is no news, we will instead discuss like a horror milestone, like somebody who is influential in horror that was born or passed away that week or in that two week span, right. past major film releases, stuff like that. Yeah. The other thing that we are going to implement is something a lot of other film and TV podcasts have that we didn't. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we probably should. And that is a rating system. So we'll rate each film we watch up to five. Right. Just because that just seems the most, most people, it's up to five stars as, as far as some sort of rating thing. I know there are a couple podcasts that do it a little differently. For example, Friday the 13th, um, Andrew and Maddie, because there are seven stripes in the rainbow, they rate on a seven stripe scale. Right. So, but we're going to stick with five just because we think that's just, easier we'll do our ratings separately so like we're not necessarily always going to agree right and i will be adding my ratings to my letterboxd account so it's going to be up to five skulls because that's on brand and we'll also do like a quick little like this is why we rated it what we rated it yep does that make sense yeah okay (sighs) i even wrote a breakdown of the of the rating system you did yes all right. I have I have no knowledge of this. <laughs> well, since we're going one to five. Yeah. I, I personally don't ever expect to give a zero because I want to at least acknowledge that a film was made. Right. I mean, I, to get to get to get a film released and something that rando us can access mm-hmm. that takes effort and time and, you know, investment and money and and people and trust even if 99.99% of the world thinks that the the film is not worth even speaking the name of, yeah. I don't plan on giving it a zero. So Right. Well, because the whole, it's still, somebody put effort into it. Right. And so we will never call, be like, oh, this film is trash or it's garbage. Right. Blah. It, we cannot like it and still acknowledge that, you know, maybe somebody does. Right. <laughs> right. And, and kind of like we've discussed before, where, you know, this may not be my flavor, yeah. You know, it doesn't really appeal to me. I don't feel like the target demographic or, you know, phrases like that. I feel like, you know, something like that could be kind of in the same ballpark. So I feel like it'll also be very rare for us to have a five star film. Yeah. Yeah. I I can actually only think of one based on this scale. So one Scully will be a film was made. Yeah. You know, basically. It exists. It exists. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't enjoy it. Maybe you will. Two would be it ticks a box. You know, I, I you know if you've never seen um, you know s- something from this director and everyone's always talking about this director and you're like, fine, I'll watch this movie and you're not into it, but it ticked a box and you can now say, yes, I have seen it and you're not a- accosted by your friends who are obsessed with that and have all their posters up or whatever. Like I'm that way for The Godfather. It's like I, I, I'm sure I, it's beautiful and what it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. So I. Me watching it just was like, okay, now I can say I've seen it. Right. Uh, three, you, you would think three out of five would be middle of the road. Mm-hmm. For three, it's check it out if you get a chance. You know, yeah. it's, it's you know, I'm not mad at it. Um, four has really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, that that's something where, like, I would legitimately recommend it to, like, any coworkers that I knew, 
you know, were at least amenable to watching horror films. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. And yeah. five is, I love it. I would 100% recommend it and would watch it again for fun. It's basically a perfect film. It, it's like it hits all the things for me. And the thing is, if I give something a five, you might give it a three. You yeah. might give it a one. Because we all have our own, our own, you know, views of things. Yeah. So far, I'm not anticipating rating anything probably higher than a four and a half. Because <laughs> I will go to halves if I have to. Uh-huh. I'm not going to be like super pedantic and be like three and a quarter stars. It's Well, I mean, yeah, I just don't want to rule out the possibility of a five, you know, because I see a lot yeah. of people that are like, I never give, you know, I never give a 10 out of 10. It's like, well, then how about we just call your rating scale one to nine and right. go home. So you're nines and nines with, you know, 9.4. Okay, so that's a 10. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I never give a perfect score because something can always be improved upon. Well, not necessarily. So, all right. So with that, I think that's the end of our housekeeping. Yes. I hope everybody's excited about the new changes. I know the whole bi-weekly release schedule thing is maybe going to take some getting used to. But um, I feel like we'll be able to put more into the episodes because we're not having to like grind it out every week. Yeah, I tell you what, I basically had Wednesday off of this and the other six days of the week I was doing something for the podcast plus working five days a week. Yeah. So this will be nice. Right, exactly. So yeah, let's get into it. So we are, we had done this starting a little bit in season three and that is um, kind of going back and looking at topics that we had kind of done previously but maybe not dedicated. We, We hadn't done them the way that we do stuff now. Right. Like, again, anybody who's been with us since the beginning knows in the in the first season, at least for the first six months we were doing the show, it was basically like we pick a topic and then just like word vomit everything we knew and just mention like 20 movies that were part of that subgenre. And just mm-hmm. it was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot to keep up with. Right. And so we're now going back and we're kind of doing our current thing of you know we'll pick two films from that and kind of give it a little bit more um, love and attention and support yeah kind of go into it in a little bit more detail so for our premiere episode of season four we are going to be revisiting the cannibals topic Mm. now we did last time talk about some various aspects of cannibalism as far as like in like real world situations and david and i each decided we were kind of going to tackle different aspects of the topic of cannibalism yes so one thing that i would like to talk about Mm -hmm. that we didn't bring up last time is um we did mention cannibalism as a means of survival Mm -hmm. but we did not specifically look at maritime cannibalism Mm. it's saltier it well i mean kind of actually i mean (laughs) so in in the golden age of sailing there were these things called customs of the sea. And a custom of the sea was basically, it was something that was said to be practiced by, you know, officers and crew of ships in the open sea where it was, it was separate from a distinct and coherent body of law that governs things. So basically country. Yeah. So it's basically saying, well, these are the specific rules while you're out at sea because you know, it's a different situation than being on land. I throw a piece of trash on the ground on land. Someone goes, that's littering. I throw a piece of trash on the ground at sea. Someone could trip, fall, bust their head open. Now we don't have anybody that knows how to repair the ship. Right. 
or navigate or, you know, we're down, we're down a doctor. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's not like you pack a bunch of them. Yeah. So there were, there were certain practices that were considered acceptable if you were out in the open ocean that would not have been acceptable back on land. Right. One of those things is, was referred to as the delicate question. Uh, also, it was referred to as it's so British. I know. Uh, was also referred to as the proper tradition of the sea, and this basically said that in case of disaster, if there was not enough food for survivors, you could eat corpses, and yep. that would be fine. If there were no corpses, lots were drawn to determine who would be sacrificed to basically be food for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And as long as it was a fair lottery, like equal risk, it could be anybody, then it was considered legal and justified. Right. There's this historian, A.W. Brian Simpson, uh, who has this quote that I actually really like. So I'm going to take a sip of Sprite and then I'm going to read it. Uh, so Simpson says, if properly conducted, cannibalism was legitimate. If properly conducted, cannibalism was legitimated. I thought I was reading that wrong. No, that's the word legitimated. I think I think what they meant to say was legitimized. Yeah, I'm going to... Ch- yeah. Uh, by a custom of the sea and the proper literature, augmented by the unrecorded tales seamen told each other, ensured that there was general understanding of what had to be done on these occasions, and that survivors who had followed the customs could have a certain professional pride and a job well done, and there was nothing to hide. So basically, as long as you follow the rules and did shit the way that it was, you know... There wasn't anything written down. It was just kind of like an agreed upon, this is how you do things. It's an understood custom. Right. It was such an understood custom that even like the general public, if you got back to, like, say you were rescued and when you got back to where you ever you were from, even the public, like general society was like, well, that sucks, but that's just what they had to do. Yeah. So I have a couple of famous examples of um, cases where they followed the rules. Okay. The first is, uh, it's called the St. Christopher case. Mm-hmm. And this was in the early 17th century. Um, seven Englishmen in the Caribbean embarked on an overnight voyage from St. Christopher Island, but ended up being blown out to sea and they were lost for like 17 days. Wow. And because it was an overnight voyage, they didn't really have much with them. Right. You're not packing for, you know, several weeks when you're just going, we're going point A to point B. We'll right. be back in a, in like half a day. Exactly. So while they were out at sea, they ended up, you know, well, we're going to have to do something to stay alive. So they drew lots and it actually ended up being the man who suggested that they draw lots who came up with the short straw. <laughs> so they killed him and cannibalized his body and that actually lasted them until they reached uh, St. Martin, okay. which is also in the Caribbean. And then once they got back to St. Christopher Island, they were actually brought up on homicide charges. But the judge pardoned them, saying that their crime had been, uh, quote, washed away by inevitable necessity. Mm. So the other famous case I have is the Essex. Yes. So the Essex was a whaling ship that was uh, out of Nantucket. In November of 1820, they were out, you know, whaling, because this was still in that period where whales were used for a lot of stuff. Oil, bone. Right. Baleen. Ambergris. Ambergris, blubber. Yeah. Meat. Yeah. 
So nobody exactly knows why this happened. But on November 20th of 1820, the ship was rammed multiple times by a sperm whale to the point where it actually broke apart and was sinking. So the crew ended up floating out on the open ocean in these smaller whale boats. Yeah. And the thing with these whale boats is they weren't meant for long voyages. So whenever they had to be patched, it was just kind of slapdash. Mm -hmm. So occasionally they would have to deal with taking on water and, and so on and so forth. And they eventually did end up having to resort to cannibalism. Of the seven crew members that were eaten... Six had died of starvation or exposure first. Owen Coffin was the only one to actually die by drawing lots. And it's funny. So Owen Coffin was only like 18 and he was the captain's cousin. And the captain even offered like, you're my cousin. I told your mom I would protect you. Let me go instead. And Owen was like, nope, I drew it. It's my duty. So they, you know, shot him in the head and cannibalized him as well and that was another one where when they were finally rescued it was just like well well that sucks but you did what you had to do right there is uh, buzzfeed has a ruining history mm-hmm. on this that goes into a lot more detail right uh but it's and it's really good i highly recommend watching it but yeah that was another interesting one uh i do also have a couple of examples where the rules were not followed Ooh, okay So the only cases that really led to, like, legal ramifications or people being like, shame on you, uh, were ones where they didn't follow the rules. They either didn't draw lots at all, or the lot was rigged, something. A lot of times this would happen because, like, the captain and other crew members would basically just choose a sacrifice that they decided was, quote, more expendable. So, passengers. Right cabin boys who tended to be younger right uh and slaves Mm. so i have two specific instances of this one is the ship called peggy so um in the winter of 1765 and 1766 uh, an american ship called peggy drifted for months after a severe storm basically destroyed all means of navigation they were just fucked they were just kind of set adrift on the yeah sea yeah so They had provisions at first, and after they ate all their provisions, and when I say ate all the provisions, I mean they had also already, like, eaten the tobacco that they had on board. They had eaten their belts and their shoes that were made of leather. Like, they were, they were out of options. So the crew, the crew told the captain, we're going to hold a lottery and uh, see who should, you know, be killed to feed us. What the captain didn't know is that basically the crew had already decided that they were just going to kill the one slave that was on board. Uh, so they they basically rigged the lottery. Mm. So after a rigged lottery, they, quote, shot him through the head. One crew member ate his raw liver. Some of the rest of the body was cooked and the rest was pickled. Hmm. So it would last longer. Right. There was actually another ship called the Tiger. Uh, I couldn't find much on it where they basically did the same thing where they're like, well, there's this one slave. We'll just kill him. And his body, they actually smoked, so it would last longer. Okay. The other one it still is... sucks that they picked him out of... Uh, just because, instead well, of drawing it lots. Was, yeah, but... for races reasons. Because they. It, it, this was, again, back when it was like, well, 
you're not a real per- you're not a whole person anyway so yeah yeah which it's yeah mind-boggling oh i know so next is the uh the francis spate which it was an irish merchant ship mm. uh it capsized and almost sank off the coast of canada due to like a really severe snowstorm in december of 1836 and all of their provisions were either lost or were spoiled by seawater damn yeah so of the 15 survivors, four of them were like teenage apprentices, like cabin boys, basically. So two weeks after the accident, the captain decided that, quote, lots should be drawn between the four boys as they had no families and could not be considered so great a loss to their friends as those who had wives and children depending on them. Hmm. So essentially, the captain said, well, we're going to pick between you. We're still going to draw lots, but only you four are up because the rest of us have wives and kids that depend on us and nobody will miss you. <laughs> so basically, what you're telling me here yeah. is the the owner of the company or the, the, the boss of the ship yeah, the captain. says, yeah. we'll just eat one of the interns. Yeah, basically. Man, that's a rough internship. Yeah. You don't have a wife or children depending on you, so you're more expendable than we are. Hmm. Now, the boys did protest, (laughs) but they didn't really have much of a choice because they were outnumbered and also they were teenagers. So they ended up, the lot ended up falling on a 14-year-old named Patrick O'Brien. They did end up cannibalizing three more men prior to their rescue, but one of them was another one of the teenagers and the other two were like, oh, like men, men. Like actual crew. Like crew. Yeah. But they had died of natural causes. Oh, you're saved this time. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing. They were actually getting ready to do another lottery when they were rescued. Oh. The crewmen were waving the hands and feet of their cannibalized victims to express how desperate they were to this American ship that spotted them. Shit. Yeah. After being stranded for 20 days... 11 crewmen survived out of 18. Three had died in the snowstorm and four had been cannibalized. Uh, and then about the ship that rescued them, the uh, Agnoria, mm-hmm. the survivors were so emaciated and malnourished that they couldn't feed themselves without help. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there are a lot of other instances um, that I, I just don't have time to go into. So if you're interested in further reading, um, I highly recommend looking into the case of R.V. Dudley and Stevens, uh, the U.S. versus Holmes, or uh, the Erebus and Terror mm. are all interesting cases to read up on. If you're interested in more maritime cannibalism. And they, they did a film about the terror, didn't they? I know there's there was a... Um, a mini series on, I think AMC. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a history buffs episode about it. True. There's also books and stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. So that is all I have for maritime cannibalism. What do you, what have you got? Well, I also was looking at kind of the the types of cannibalism because um, I didn't realize there were types until I started thinking about it, and and I didn't get this typology from like you know any detailed research. It's just what I bracketed them into. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got survival cannibalism, medical cannibalism, and uh, what I've dubbed ritualistic. Yeah. So survival cannibalism is going to be like your at sea stuff. Yeah. 1609 Jamestown. There's evidence that there was bones chewed on. Yeah. Uh, 1846 Donner Party. It's another mm-hmm. situation where it was like, look, 
it's not like we could just be like, oh, let's go get a cow or let's drive to the store. It was eat this person or die. Yeah. Packard. Uh, then there's medical cannibalism. That um, was super popular during Victorian times. There's, yes. That's actually a large reason why there aren't a whole lot of mummies in in like museums and stuff. Yes, that's actually what I was about to say. Yeah. Uh, mummies were, the, were one of the first things often turned into powders. Yeah. Or um, uh, that powder then made into tinctures. It was really popular in parts of Europe. Um, powdered skull was used to cure headaches. Yep. Um, you know, like heels, like sort of situation. Yeah. A lot of this information I also got from uh, Leisha Miller is a lawyer that d- did an episode on the legality of cannibalism. Yeah. Uh, which I'll get into. Cool. But uh, there, there were also bandages that, that were soaked in human fat to heal wounds or rubbed into the skin to treat gout. I know menstrual blood was used quite a bit in things, particularly if it was the menstrual blood of a virgin. That mm. was considered even more powerful. Yeah. Uh, although some of that slips a little into the ritualistic side. Yeah. But speaking of blood, uh, apparently uh, drinking human blood was used to treat epilepsy. Yeah. Um, but only if it was fresh. It couldn't be kept in storage. So if someone was to be executed, people would actually show up with cups or tankards to collect yeah. blood uh, after the execution. That way, you know, I mean, it's hands are clean. Uh, you know, They're not killing somebody. They're just getting the blood of someone. I mean, otherwise they're just going to rot, you know? Yeah. There was, a, that was actually one of the, one of my cases where they just picked someone to kill that, that was their argument of killing them while they were still alive was, well, if we kill them while they're still alive, then we have their blood to drink right. instead of seawater, which you're not supposed to drink. Yeah. That'll kill you. Yeah. Um, there is a form of medical cannibalism that's still commonly practiced today. And that is uh, those who uh, choose to eat part of their placenta to balance hormones and ward off postpartum depression. Um, yeah. It's still practiced in many parts of the world. That was actually on uh, on the newest season of uh, The Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about when uh, Catherine the Great's son was born, they took her placenta and put it in vodka. Mm. And so when they give her some vodka to drink, they're like, this was this has your placenta in it. <laughs> And then we've got ritualistic. Um, so that I've broken down into kind of two components. One is religious, generally no longer practiced, but still used symbolically. Mm-hmm. And then there's murder, serial murder. By the way, not all cannibals are serial killers because that n- indicates, you know, repetition and, and method. Whereas someone could just e- kill one person and eat them and they are a murderer who cannibalized a person, but not a serial killer. Right. Um, so... Serial typically means more than one. Yeah. So did you want me to get into what the legality of, of cannibalism or did you want me to wait on that? Well, because we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. And my assumption was that it was it was illegal because I know that there are laws on like like how you can and cannot treat a corpse. Because mm-hmm. I've seen that where some people are charged with like desecration of a corpse because they didn't like report it or something that they did was not correct. So I just assumed that cannibalism was just illegal, but you led me to believe that that is not the case, <laughs> which is fucked up. Uh, yeah. Because that mean that now means that now in the year of our goddess, twenty twenty three, we have people in government that are lobbying to make drag shows illegal, but cannibalism is still fine. So again, a lot of this is sourced from Leisha Miller's episode on cannibalism. Seriously, check it out. It's an awesome episode. Okay. Um, 
It's a March 13th, 2023 episode. So, I mean, or March 15th, sorry, uh, 2023. So, is it illegal or just a taboo? In the U.S., it's only specifically illegal in Idaho. Uh, Their law specifically states any person who willfully ingests the flesh or blood of a human being is guilty of cannibalism. There is, however, an exclusion if deemed necessary for survival in extreme circumstances, so they've still got that out. Okay. But, you know, no no Mike stakes today, okay? You know, I mean that's that's not that's not cool. Yeah. Um everywhere else in the US, other charges related to those crimes, such as desecration of a corpse, uh, can be used especially as a modifier to say a murder charge. Right. Uh, I mean if you if you found the corpse and then you, you cut it up and you ate it and it's not extreme thing like you could just like open your fridge and have something else. Right. Um, then that's, that doesn't mean, you know, that whole extreme thing. Then it's desecrating a corpse. Yeah. If you, if you didn't kill him. So, I mean, you know, maybe they generally just think, well, we'll just start with like the thing that's the most obvious. Well, the thing that's the easiest to prosecute because there's at least, you know, precedent. There's legal precedent for murder and desecration of a corpse. There's not really a whole lot of legal precedent for cannibalism. Now I have. It's also harder to prove. Yeah. Well, I have more of this, yeah. but I'm going to save this for later. Okay. I don't like the smile that you're giving me right now, but okay. Don't worry. It'll be a treat for everybody. Okay, cool. Um, oh, you wanted my case too, didn't you? I would like your case before we get started on the movies, yes. Okay. So, the turn of the millennia brought many things to the modern age. Uh, this includes personal ads, forums, bulletin board services that cleared the way for the eventual advent of social media. The internet. Yes. In the small town of Wustfeld, west of Rotenburg an der Fulda in Germany, Armin Maiways was looking for someone rather niche, uh, specifically a willing volunteer to meet a gruesome end. Maiways posted an advertisement on the then active website Cannibal Cafe. It's now a defunct forum for people with a cannibalism fetish. Yeah. He said he was looking for a well-built 18 to 25-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. On the same site, and others, Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes, well, I'll just refer to as Brandes from now on, uh, a 43-year-old engineer from Berlin, had posted an advert for someone to obliterate his life and leave no trace. Brandes answered MyWay's advertisement in March of 2001. Many other people responded to the advertisement as well, but backed out. Myways didn't want to attempt to force anyone to do anything against their will. He wanted someone who was willing to do this. Yeah. He had a, a need he wanted filled, and so did Brandis. Yeah. He didn't quite meet the age range, but... What are you going to do? Exactly. Uh, when they met on March 9th, 2001, uh, the two made a videotape in Myways home. Hey folks, Editor David here. Uh, just wanted to let you know that the next two minutes and 25 seconds are going to be relatively graphic. So if that's not something that you are open to handling at the moment, that's totally fine. Just skip ahead two minutes and 25 seconds from right now. Otherwise, enjoy. The video shows MyWay's amputating Brandis's penis with his agreement and the two men attempting to eat it together. Before doing so, Brandis swallowed uh, many sleeping pills and a bottle of cough syrup causing an effect of slowed breathing and extreme tiredness. Uh, Brandis initially insisted that Maiway should attempt to bite his penis off. Uh, this didn't work, and Maiway's ultimately had to resort to using a knife to remove it. Yeah. 
Uh, Brandis apparently tried to eat some of his own penis raw, but couldn't because he said it was tough and, uh, as he put it, it was chewy. Yeah. I always then fried the penis in a pan with salt, pepper, wine, and garlic. And then he fried it with some of Brandis's fat, but then it was too burnt to be consumed. He then chopped up the penis and uh, fed it to his dog. According to court officials who saw the video, which has not been made public... Well, thank God. Like, that's not anything anyone needs to see. <laughs> right. Uh, Brandis may uh, have been too weakened from his blood loss to eat any of his penis. Myways then ran Brandis a bath before going to read his Star Trek book, uh, while checking on Brandis every 15 minutes, during which time Brandis lay bleeding in the bath, drifting in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. After long hesitation and prayer, Myways killed Brandis by stabbing him in the throat, after which he hung the body on a meat hook. The incident was recorded on a four-hour videotape, which has never been released to the public again. Again, due thank to God. Its, due to its gruesome contents. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's because it's part of an active investigation. It's just the police saw it and they were like, no. Even the people who had to watch it for legal reasons were like, I really wish I had not seen that. I really hope they got some good counseling. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> Myways dismembered and ate the corpse over the next 10 months, storing body parts in his freezer under pizza boxes and consuming up to an estimated 44 pounds or 20 kilograms of the flesh. I've seen um, various documentaries where they talk about where um, he kind of talks about his experience of what it was like because mm-hmm. apparently this had been like a lifelong like desire. Yeah. I actually have some quotes from him from an interview uh, later that, that came down the line. Oh, okay. Sorry. I don't mean to step on your toes. Oh no, no, no. You're fine. He was quoted in saying, I dare, I decorated the table with nice candles. I took out my best dinner service and I fried a piece of rump steak, a piece from his back, uh, made what I call princess potatoes and sprouts. He said, The first bite was, of course, very strange. It was a feeling I can't really describe. I'd spent over 40 years longing for it, dreaming about it. And now I was getting the feeling that I was actually achieving this perfect inner connection through his flesh. The flesh tastes like pork, but stronger, I always went on to say. Yeah, that's one of the quotes I remember, is that like a very strong pork flavor. According to prosecutors, my ways committed the act for sexual pleasure based on what they saw in in the in the video and his reasoning behind things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Myways was arrested in December of 2002 when a college student alerted authorities to new advertisements for victims online. In other yeah, words, he was going to do it again. Well, I mean, he was when you run out of burger, you you go to the store and you get more burger. Right, he was going to the store. Yeah, um, <laughs> such a fuck. Invest. Oh, Jesus, fuck. <laughs> Invest- investigators searched his home and found body oh, parts God. and the videotape of the killing. Um, Which really the videotape was, was it was insurance. It was essentially saying like, I didn't like, yes, I killed this person and ate their flesh. But he, look at the tape. He wanted me to do it. He said, please do this. Right. My race was diagnosed with a schizoid personality, but deemed fit to stand trial. On the 30th of January, 2004, Myways was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. Yeah, because again, there's no legal precedent for cannibalism. So the German courts were like, eh. Plus, many, many locations, you know, throughout Europe, 
outside of the U.S., a life sentence is very unusual. Mm-hmm. Usually there's like a a maximum. A lot of times I see bandied around like 25 years. Well, because the rest of the world, or most of the rest of the world, particularly Europe, doesn't look at prison as a as a punishment necessarily. I mean, it's partly that, but it's also we need to rehabilitate and figure out why why did they do what they did and how do we fix that so they don't have to do it again. Right. Unlike our country that treats it as modern slave labor. Like partic- Norway in particular has like really nice like I wouldn't even necessarily call them prisons, they're rehabilitation facilities. Yeah. Needless to say the case attracted considerable media attention. Well, yeah. And uh, when speaking to a German newspaper, Maiwes uh, admitted cannibalizing Brandes and expressed regret for his actions. He added that he wanted to write a biography uh, with the aim of deterring anyone from wanting to follow in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. Websites dedicated to Maiwes started appearing after two th- his 2002 arrest with people, people advertising for willing victims. Uh, Maiwes said they should go for treatment so it doesn't escalate like it did with me. Yeah. Um. While in prison, Maiwes has since also become a vegetarian. Yep. Uh, he believes uh, that there are about 800 cannibals in Germany. Yeah. Based on based on his experience in, you know, online. Now, notice he was only sentenced to eight and a half years back in 2002. Well, there was a retrial and a murder conviction yes. in 2005. Yeah. A German court ordered a retrial after prosecutors appealed uh, Maiwes' sentence saying that he should have been convicted for murder because he killed for sexual gratification. And so they basically said, hey, this wasn't tried correctly. We were using the wrong rule book. Right. But at the same time, it's like, how much does how much does the does the wishes of the victim factor into that? I don't know. At his retrial, a psychologist stated that my ways could reoffend and and still had fantasies about devouring the flesh of young people. On the 10th of May, 2006, a court in Frankfurt convicted Maiwes of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Which he's probably fine with, to be perfectly I mean, honest. I mean, he's, he's like, yeah, probably comfortable. Yeah. yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure the worst German prison is probably better than the nicest American prison. I don't know. I, I don't want to con- compare one person's worst to... Well, you, yeah. Because then it, we just get into one-upmanship that just gets That's really That's true. That's, really it's gross. a weird kind of comparison. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> He admits that he did it and he regrets it. So I'm sure he's perfectly fine being like, yeah, I belong in prison. And it is kind of normal. I, I just I just want to humanize him a brief bit. I mean, people might think he's a monster. I mean, he this is something he wanted to do. You know, we all have weird, weird shit. If you've never looked at someone and said, you know what? I really want to punch this person right now. And I have no reason to or knock that cup out of their hand because I don't know. It'd be funny for a split second. The aftermath wouldn't be great. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, all these impulses and all these things, I just find it, I find it very intriguing that even though he's, you know, gone vegetarian and everything, it's still okay to have fantasies about something that you don't have plans to ever do. To ever do it, yeah. That's why we don't have nearly as many people just randomly killing people at the grocery store, because let me tell you, grocery shopping can be a nightmare. All right. Are you ready to get into the film discussions? I am. I yeah. think everybody else is too after that bit of torture. Which torture? Us talking about cannibalism for... Well, you know, yeah, some of those details may have been a bit rough. But yeah, a little bit, but you know. Now we're to the entertainment side of things. Indeed. 
so the first movie we are going to talk about is 1999's Ravenous. And um, I it's been a while since I've written notes, so I forgot to put the plot summary in my notes. So I have it pulled up <laughs> separately on my phone. Um, in a remote military outpost in the 19th century, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embark on a rescue mission, which takes a dark turn when they are ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> nice. Or nom, nom, nom. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> God damn it. Okay. Directed by Antonia Bird. Screenplay by Ted Griffin. The cast, Guy Pierce is Captain John Boyd. Mm-hmm. Robert Carlyle is F.W. Calhoun. David Arquette is Private Cleves. Jeremy Davies is Private Toffler. Jeffrey Jones is Colonel Hart. John Spencer is General Slauson. Stephen Spinella is Major Knox. Neil McDonough is Private Reich. Joseph Running Fox is George. And Sheila Towsey is Martha. So this movie takes place during the uh, Spanish-American War. Mm-hmm. And Captain Boyd, basically, in a moment of cowardice, just kind of laid down and played dead while the rest of his regiment died. And because they thought he was dead, he was loaded onto like a cart and taken into basically like the Mexican fort. Yeah. And was able to single handedly take it because of that. So when General Slauson finds out how he was able to take it single handedly, he's like, well, I can't exactly like sentence you to like death or something for cowardice because you did take this fort. But I don't want you anywhere near me because you're a cowardy bitch. Right. So he sends him to um, Fort Spencer, which is in like the California wilderness. It's like in the uh, Sierra, ne- Sierra Nevada mm-hmm. Valley, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not great it's, at it's, it's a mountain range. It's in the mountains. Yeah. yeah. Sierra Nevada mountains. And this, it, it's very much like, um, it's not a very nice looking fort. It, yeah, it's a bit ramshackle. And it's kind of like... This is where we send the misfits. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Kind of thing. So before we get too much further into that, I do want to say before they send him off, Boyd ends up being given like a medal. Yeah. For taking this fort. And there's like a ceremony. And then like everybody's like everybody in this place is like having dinner. And everybody just has like a really big steak Mm -hmm. on their plate and nothing else. Which I thought that was a little weird. It also, all the steak looks well done. Yeah. And I'm just like, really? Just like a shit ton of well done steak? You don't have potatoes or Or, like literally anything else? Do you just have steak and wine? Like, what the fuck? I mean, one out of ten people would probably sit there and go, well, that sounds perfect. I I just want something, especially if you're going to give me a steak that's well done. First of all, I prefer my steaks medium rare. Yeah. So if you're going to give me a well done steak and I'm going to spend so much fucking time chewing on this bitch, I need something to break that up. Yeah. Give me a baked potato. Yeah. (laughs) So they don't really say how long Boyd's been at this fort before this random person shows up. Calhoun. Yeah. Who is like frostbitten and like near death. And once they're able to kind of like wake him up and everything... He tells this whole big story about how they got lost. It's essentially a Donner Party situation, but like much smaller. One of the great lines, like one of my favorite lines in the movie, though, is in this is in this bit Mm -hmm. 
where I don't remember who it is. I think it's Reich asks him, like, how did you survive with no food for three months? Because that's how long he says they were out there. And it's the middle of winter. And Calhoun says, I said there was no food. I didn't say there was nothing to eat. Yeah. And he even detailed, like, you know, we ate belts and shoe leather. and We ate the oxen. We ate every, everything we could that was near us. That was, we ate our boots. We ate our, our anything leather that we had with us. You know, we ate roots that we dug out of the ground, even though there's like no real nutritional value in those. Yeah. And um, he says that while he was gone one day looking for food, he came back to discover that, again, the one person of color with the group had died and the rest of the group was cannibalizing his body. I will say I find it interesting because in my research, you know, I did all that research about cannibalism as a means of survival at sea and everyone seemed to be fine with that but when Calhoun is telling the story of cannibalism to survive in the middle of like the rest of the men at the fort are like looking at him with disgust like uh how could you do that yeah so I just find it a little odd that apparently cannibalism is fine if you're stranded at sea or on a deserted island but not if you're stranded in the wilderness in the middle of winter Yes. Because this film takes place in the late 1840s and the custom of the sea remained in effect until like the late 18, early 1900s. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure why. Well, when you're at sea, it's not like you can go somewhere. You can't even send out a party to go find something. I mean, I mean, I, I wondered about like, well, have you tried fishing? But fishing is so hit or miss anyway mm-hmm. that unless they're like casting nets or you know, chumming to attract sharks or something, which is, if you're desperate, that's probably the last thing you want to do is try to attract a a shark while you're also weakened. Um, But in the case of the Essex, they didn't even have a full-size boat. I mean, they had, they had small little whale boats. Um, I did see where some of the tortoises they had um, gotten off the Galapagos Islands, they had in in a couple of the boats with them, but they weren't able to bring very many of them. Right. Because they're kind of big. Because they're 100 to 300 pounds each. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like taking up the space of a person. Right. But yeah, Calhoun basically says he left. And when he left, there was like only two people left. One of them was was Colonel Ives, who apparently was super enjoying being a cannibal. And the other one was this one woman. So <laughs> Colonel Hart is like, well, we have to we have to go find and see if this woman is still alive. Yeah. I'm curious why it takes six people to search for two people and why they didn't take any horses. Because I feel like you could have taken, they could have taken horses at least up to a point. But then do what with them? They would have already had to drop one person. So that's part of the reason in a search party like that, you're going to need more people because let's say someone breaks a leg. Right. Someone's going to have to carry them. Typically, you could even more quickly have two people carry them. Yeah. Plus, if there's any kind of, I mean, there's an acceptable amount of loss that, you know, command leadership has to look at and say, if six of us go, there's a possibility we could lose one. Right. Maybe two. So that puts us at four. Four rescuing two against unknown quantities, unknown factors. I could see I could see why sending six would make sense. It Hor- just seemed odd to me. Because it's like, bring, bring, take, yeah, go with six people, bring the horses. And once you get to where you can't take the horses anymore, leave one person with the horses. Sure. And basically establish a camp if there. So that if you do end up rescuing people, you have a, an established camp that you can bring them to before going all the way, all the rest of the way back to the fort. Yeah, feed them, treat them if necessary. Right. That know, was my thinking. Yeah. Okay. 
sort of a triage camp. Right. It does turn out that Calhoun is basically is Ives or is posing as Ives eventually at a point. I'm not sure which. I do. I will say the fucking music in this movie. There's this one bit where there's like this jaunty folksy music that is juxtaposed with Calhoun like killing basically everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And you're just like, what the fuck? It it reminded me a little bit of um, the original Last House on the Left. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Another weird thing that triggered in my brain is um, there is a a bit where basically Calhoun has Boyd cornered Mm -hmm. on, on a cliff face. And Boyd just says, fuck it, and jumps. Yeah. And he hits a tree and just starts like ass over tea kettle rolling down this hill he like runs into the body of Reich and also just, they, then they're both rolling down the hill because Reich got stabbed and pushed over the cliff. And it triggered in my brain this thought of um, and this memory of when when we were little, my sister and I used to roll down the hill at our grandparents' farm. <laughs> Granted, it was a much smaller hill and neither of us had been stabbed at the time, but it was basically like a throw yourself down the hill and just roll. I don't know why we enjoyed doing that, but we really did. I've done it. Yeah, it's fun. I don't know why. It was, I don't know. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Let's, what are some of your thoughts? Go figure a movie about cannibalism. My first note is about food. That's the, yeah, I have, I have a thought about that later. Well, early on, first of all, I said it was tonally strange, but that's kind of the vibe of this film is it's tonally, it it really is. It's tonally strange because it's like, if you played it completely straight, and changed some minor, some major things, but like pretty much all the lines, all the actions still pretty much the same. It could be a really scary movie. It could be like Deliverance turned up a few notches and turned down in other places. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's like almost comically slapstick. There are places that it definitely has, um, well, like your brain will be like Three Stooges. Oh, or yeah, very Abbott much. And Costello. Very yeah. much. But yeah, one of my notes was uh, the meat looked like a, a bone-in leg steak, like someone cut horizontally through the leg. It didn't look well butchered. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about at the very beginning when it's cattle <laughs> that they're eating. But it still looked like, I mean, my brain was already thinking this is a cannibal movie, so I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, yeah. Also, we get to see Robert Carlyle 94% naked, uh, which makes sense since the full money was only two years before. Yeah. Um, so I did make a note saying we, of course, get naked Robert Carlyle because he's like, so do I get naked in this one? It's he's like, so good in this, too. Oh, yeah, he, he is. Robert, Car- Robert Carlyle in general is really good at playing these characters that are just a little bit unhinged. Yes. Uh, sometimes they it teeters over into a lot unhinged, like with um, in this movie, but also Begbie. Yeah. Yeah. Begbie definitely hell. Once upon a time. Certain, yeah, I was going to say gold. certain times of uh, certain elements of once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah. He's like likably evil. Yeah. Or at least likably chaotic. I'll put it that way. Because, um, again, I ain't. There's I ain't a judge. weird charm to him that kind of transfers over to the characters that he plays. That's fair. Uh, the, the biggest thing that messed with my head is it felt like it would. Like, is it intentionally meant to look like, look and feel like it's from the 70s? Because it felt like, it, it felt to me like maybe it came out a few years after they started putting out colorized versions of F Troop. Okay. So, I mean, like, we're talking, you know, way back machine here. 
there's just a vibe about it that felt very dated but modern. Interesting. Um, and I have some interesting notes about the music that you pointed out. Go for it. Uh, well, I, I first said it's it's oddly good. Like some of the folksy stuff, I, w- I wasn't a big fan of until it grew on me, like with a quickness. But then there's like other music that's like a lot more modern kind of electronic not not like EDM, but like there, there's a lot more modern influence to the music. Not folksy at all. And now I understand why. Because the music for the film was put together by a, a co-collaboration. Actually, not a, not a collaboration according to them. Uh, but it was the duo of Michael Neiman, who scored... He's scored tons of stuff. He's composed a lot of stuff. Did Drowning by Numbers, The Piano, Gattaca, okay. Practical Magic... Um, and Damon Albarn of, you know, frontman of Blur and the constant for gorillas. Oh, okay. Um, so, so they, that's why some of the music seems kind of like synthy. A little bit. Yeah. So they agreed that Albarn would be credited first on the album and Neiman would be credited first in the film credits. Uh, Weird. okay. The score was actually not a collaboration, like, like I mentioned. Uh, according to Neiman, Ravenous was a joint composition in the sense that Damon Alborn composed 60% of the tracks and I did the rest. Um, it also features Neiman's first writing for banjo since his 1981 self-titled album. Interesting. I mean, it's not bad. It's just odd in places. It, it is odd, but, you know, we, we've seen films with odd musical scores before where, you know, it's like, oh, what is it? Opera. Ha- yeah. has a metal soundtrack i'm like what pla- it- oh my god yeah like it's i weird. did not expect that at all but then once it kicked in again i'm like okay yeah here comes the metal something something's about to go down nice you know well and that was kind of like a thing with a lot of giallo films they're like a the soundtrack didn't really always match up with but i don't know yeah. but yeah it's just kind of i don't know i've been getting a lot into like sourcing where where the music is coming from and what they were thinking and stuff but yeah I, I kind of get it now. Yeah. It's like a wild concept album. So one of the things that they bring up in this film that I had you look into a little bit, I, I know a little bit about it just kind of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so Calhoun, who, who is Ives. Yes. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep calling him Calhoun because it's just easier that way. Okay. Was suffering from tuberculosis and met a uh, Native American guide who told him the legend of of the Wendigo. Mm-hmm. And that was what sparked him to be like, well, I wonder if that's true. I'm dying anyway. So he killed the dude and ate him. Yeah. And it basically, he says, cured his tuberculosis. And but the thing with part of the lead part of part of it is once you start, you can't stop. Yes. So his end goal basically is to take over Fort Spencer and use it as a as a post for continuing his cannibalism. Right. And he'll have a couple people there that are also cannibals like him so that they have a, you know, a stake in keeping it going. And they won't kill everyone who comes to the fort, just like people who won't be missed. Right. Um, I have a thought. I have thoughts about the stew that they get Boyd to eat. Mm hmm. Um. Just before you get into the Wendigo stuff that I had you look up. Yeah. The stew that that they make from from Knox, mm-hmm. there's no way that stew can be very good. And Why do you say that? 
Okay, so this is the weird part of being a foodie, but also being a horror fan is because when I see movies where there's things like cannibalism, I'm looking at it and I'm watching Calhoun make this stew and he's cutting up the carrots, but the carrots are all different sizes. So there's not going to be any consistent cooking. So some of the carrots are going to be basically mush and some of them are going to still be like essentially raw. And then the potatoes that he's not cutting them up at all. He's basically just throwing them in whole. And some of them are like the size of my fist. And some of them are like much smaller. So again, there's not going to be any consistent cooking there. I don't know. Those are just weird thoughts that I have. Well, I also feel like that kind of stew on on the fire is basically something you get started. And once it's ready, people just kind of serve from it. So Right. But like, that doesn't mean I want mushy vegetables. You get what you can get out there. I I want my... Sorry, I'm very particular about my bit about vegetables. So if you had to choose between mushy vegetables and eating human, you'd eat mushy vegetables? I would prefer mushy... I would eat mushy vegetables as opposed to eating people. But... (laughs) Draw lots. The carrots are overcooked. Look. Okay. (laughs) Listen. Oh, goodness. Listen. If I'm going to be eating a person's stew anyway, I would at least prefer that it be well-cooked. It's fair. I know. It doesn't make any sense. But But it also does. But it also does because I watch a lot of cooking shows and I cook a lot. (laughs) It's just a thought I had. And it's a weird thought to have. And even while having the thought, I know it's a weird thought to have. But you got to get it out anyway. It's in here. It's that impulse. Yes. I have another observation for in the same vein for our next film, but I'm going to let you talk about Wendigo's. Okay. So, Wendigos. Some of you know about Wendigos, some of you don't. That's okay. I'll clue you in based on... I I went across several websites because I'm not really an authority on this, but uh, across the various sites I reviewed, this one seems to be the most unbiased and thorough. Yeah. Uh, So, this is from legendsofamerica.com. This was an article written by Kathy Alexander in December of 2022 uh, regarding the Wendigo lore. uh, The the creature has long been known among the Algonquin Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, Salto, uh, West Main Swampy Cree, Nescapi, and Innu peoples. Uh, described as giants much, lar- lar- much larger than human beings, although descriptions can vary somewhat. Uh, common to all these creatures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Algonquin legend describes uh, the creature as a a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it's thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. Uh, Whereas the uh, Ojibwe variation describes it as it was a large creature as tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. Now, according to the legends, uh, in general, a Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. Uh, in the past, this occurred more often when you know folks found themselves stranded in bitter snows and ice in the North Woods. Uh, sometimes stranded for days, survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead to survive. 
other versions of the legend cite that the Wendigo might also possess humans, as mentioned before, who displayed extreme greed, gluttony, and excess. Uh, so the myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation as well. Interesting. Yeah, I've known a little bit about it just because it comes up every once in a while. And like, if you are into the supernatural or horror fiction, it comes up every so often. Right. It's they. It's been in an episode of Supernatural. It was mm. featured in uh, the video game Until Dawn. Right. The, the, there's Wendigos in that. There is a, uh, I think it's, it's, I think it's an episode of Fear itself where there, it's the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, Wendigo was brought up and I think had some images and moments in Incredible Hope number 181. The comic? Yes. Okay. Neat. Didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I have a little bit more on the Wendigo. Okay. This is mo- mostly descriptors. Though the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they're described as having sallow yellowish skin, and other times they are covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have several skills and powers, including stealth. It's a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through dark magic. They're also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Yeah. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land eternally, seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh. And if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, um, in Ravenous, George, before they went out, tried to warn. Because George and Martha are uh, are brother and sister. They're indigenous peoples. They doesn't say what tribe they're from. But George tries to tell Boyd and Hart that Calhoun is is a Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Well, and they mention Ojibwe also, so it, he he meant yeah he he says Ojibwe. Um, and then when you know Boyd eventually does make it back and is talking to Martha, he's like, "How do I? How do you kill this thing?" And she's like, "You don't. It eats and eats, and the more it eats, the more it wants to eat." Yeah, it, it takes till there's nothing left to take. Yeah, she's like, "The only way to kill it is to give yourself." So it, essentially, like, you have to be willing to die. Yeah. Speaking of Martha, my fa- one of my favorite parts of the movie is at the end when she just fucking leaves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, good for her. She gets back. And I'm just like, I've seen this movie before, but it's been a while. So I'm like, she's wandering around looking for stuff. And I'm like, Martha, sweetie, just leave. Forget these white people. They're crazy. And then she does walk out the door. And I'm like, you know what? Good for her. Like, if that was me, I would have been like, deuces, and just, yeah. <laughs> I'll see you all later. Or never, more likely. I I kind of love the fact that no matter how dark the film gets, mm-hmm. David Arquette is perpetually fucking high. Oh my god, he's constantly high. No more loco weed for you. Okay, get some more loco weed. <laughs> no, no loco weed and no women. All right, get some loco weed and get a woman. Like, no, no. <laughs> it's not what we said. Because the intro of him in the movie is just him and George, like... Laughing. Laughing and smoking. I don't know what. It could it could be weed. It could be just peyote. I, nobody knows. There's a lot of things they could have been consuming. Who knows? All right. Are you ready to move on to our second film? Did we have final thoughts on a rating? Or are we oh, shit, you're end? right. We do that now. See, that's the new thing. So- <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um... Overall, I think I would give this film, um, I'd give it a, like a, a two and a half, maybe a three. Um, well, actually, did I already rate it on my letterbox? Hang on. 
be really wild if you rated a five there and a three here. I know I didn't. <laughs> no, I clicked on the wrong thing. Balls. I didn't even know. I did not even. I didn't even mark that I'd watched it. So no, I haven't already rated it. So I'll go ahead and do that now. So yeah, I'm going to go with three stars. Overall, like the performances are good. And I feel like if you're a fan of Robert Carlyle, this is one of those ones where you just kind of have to, you know, give it a go. It's just fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the ending was weird and slightly anticlimactic. A little bit. For trained soldiers, Boyd and Calhoun suck at trying to kill each other. Um, the editing can be a little confusing, like continuity-wise, especially the second half. But Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell how much time has passed exactly. And, th- and it seems like there's like... There, there are moments where I'm like, is this a flashback or are they meeting up? Oh, I guess they're here at the camp now. Why are they here? Who? Why? Why are they here? You know? Right. Um, There's a lot of stuff that just doesn't get explained and you just kind of have to go with it. But all of that said, it's actually kind of good in spite of its small flaws. Yeah. Uh, solid acting, fun characters. I mean, the characters are engaging. Mm-hmm. I actually cared about even characters I normally wouldn't care about. Um, the music was a trip. And yeah. it also didn't waste my time. It's an hour and a half long. Yeah. So I gave it three out of five skulls. Yeah. Three out of five scullies. Little scullies. Scullies. All right. So let's move on to our second film. Yes. Hang on. I didn't put a plot summary in for this one either. Look, I'm sorry. It's been a while. I know. We're just getting back into the swing of things. And I'm that's okay. sorry. <laughs> the plot summary is dating apps suck. <laughs> Go to the grocery store. The plot summary is dating Modern dating sucks. Fair. All right. So 2022's Fresh. Fresh follows Noah, who meets the alluring Steve at a grocery store, and given her frustration with dating apps, takes a chance and gives him her number. A choice she will ultimately regret. As directed by Mimi Cave, written by Lauren Kahn. Uh, the cast, we have Daisy Edgar Jones as Noah. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Stan as Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonica T. Gibbs is Molly. Oh, yeah. Andrea Bang is Penny. Mm-hmm. Charlotte Lebon is Anne. Uh, Dea Okunee is Paul. And Brett Dyer is Chad. Speaking of Chad. Good God. We open with one of probably the most uncomfortable dates I've ever witnessed. My dude, so many red flags for this Chad guy. Like, Noah's not even out of the fucking car yet. And she gets a text message from this guy saying, oh, by the way, this place is cash only. Like, I don't... So, so the red flags that I have for this particular individual. Yes. Enlighten us. He makes Noah pay. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, they don't... T- only They only take cash and I just have my cards. Which, if you picked the place, wouldn't you know that they only take cash? Yeah. So, I don't know if he picked the place or not. I don't know. Uh, but he makes Noah pay and then takes all of the leftovers. Yeah. He's like, my brother's going to be in town, so I'm just going to take this stuff. I'm like, D- what? No. He negs her about her appearance. He's like, I just feel like women in our mom's generation just cared more about how they looked. You would look so pretty in a dress, which fuck you. I mean, he he, would, he was like milliseconds away from saying, you know, if you smiled a little bit more, you'd be prettier. I'm like, fuck you, dude. <sighs> yeah. He's racist and also just generally rude towards that waitress. Mm hmm. He doesn't hold open the door for her, which I'm not saying is a thing that you have to do. But if you are walking, if you are in a public place and you are walking through a door and you know that somebody is coming 
behind you to go through the door also. Yeah. It's just common courtesy to, to hold the door and not to let it go and let it almost slam in the person's face. Yeah. And then when he's like, oh, I had fun. We should do this again. She very nicely, very politely says, I don't think we're a good fit. And immediately he starts attacking her. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just trying to be nice. You know, you're not even my type. And then like calls her a bitch. And it's just like, I'm like, dude. But here's the thing. That's actually fairly common Fuck. with guys. Really? Yeah. Like it, it is not uncommon for if you and most I'm, I'm willing to bet that. So a large part of our listenership is women. Mm hmm. And I'm willing to bet most of them have had at least one to two instances in their life of where they have said no thank you or to a second date with a guy. And immediately it's like, well, you're not even that pretty anyway, ugly bitch. You're so fat. And like it immediately it goes to insults mm. because I- I'm not exactly sure why I- it because they're fragile, broken little boys. I think it's just because they they don't understand how to accept rejection in a, I don't want to say classy way, but in a way that's not shitty. Gracefully. Gracefully. Thank you. So they immediately go into a, it's not, there's nothing wrong with me. And, oh, well, I didn't like you that much anyway, to try and like lessen the, the, the pain and the anger. So they don't have to feel the pain. Right. Um, I do also have pulled out here um, things that happen in this film that I have done or that have happened to me. Holy shit. Okay. And again, I'm willing to bet that most of our female listeners have also had this shit happen to them or have done this shit. When she's walking to her car and she puts her keys between her fingers. Mm-hmm. Done it. Yeah. I've done it multiple times. Especially when you hear footsteps behind you. Mm-hmm. Like- Receiving a random dick pic. Yeah. N- don't. That's, yep. That's just don't. As you mentioned earlier, being told to smile. No. Come on, give us a smile. Why? I don't owe you anything. You haven't earned a smile. You're earning a frown right now by asking that. Yeah. And along with that goes um, being told I would be prettier if I made an effort. Hmm. You'd be so much prettier if you smiled or, oh, maybe you should do something with your hair. You'd be so much prettier. No, that the correct response to that is is either nothing and walk away or fuck you. Mm-hmm. Yep. In, in my opinion. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I apologize that this happens. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ridiculously common. Ew. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. And the, just, the number of bad internet dates I had prior to meeting you, this film, like, the, the opening part where she's on this bad date just, like, triggered so many, like, icky feelings mm-hmm. for me. I legitimately once had a guy, this was, I met him online because that's modern dating a lot of the time. Right. And I met him at a bar and this dude, it was like being into beer was like his whole personality. Oh no. His favorite book was, I hope they serve beer in hell. And when we left the bar and he walked me to my car, I gave him a hug. Mm -hmm. And then when I pulled back from the hug, he put his hands on my shoulders and tried to push me down towards his crotch. Oh, fuck. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. No. Yep. No. The only head he's going to get is on a lo- on the beer he pours at home. Yeah. And, like, some of the things, like, it's just ridiculous. Like, telling, like, sending 
um, sending a friend like the information for the guy you're going on a, on a date with mm-hmm. so that if anything happens to you, they know who to look for. Jeez. Yeah. Ta-da. Fuck, man. Yeah. That's awful. Yep. Sure is. Fucking sucks. And that's f- the first 20 minutes of this movie is basically like a romantic drama. And I remember once we get to like the twist mm-hmm. or like the because there's like there's two twists, basically. Right. When we get to the first twist, I remember thinking that it was turning into like a human trafficking situation or maybe Steve was going to like keep Noah as like a sex slave kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I did not expect it to quickly pivot into cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. But there are a couple of quotes. That, there are some things that Steve says earlier in the film that on a second watch make way more sense. Yeah. After their first like official date, when he when Noah brings him back to her place, she says, can I get you anything to drink or eat? And he says, no, just you. Mm-hmm. And then later when they're having dinner, she's eating like these short ribs. Yeah. And offers him some and he says, I don't eat animals. And then she's like so apologetic about it because she's like, oh, and he's like, no, I want you to eat that. I, I, I dare you to finish that. Yeah, I. I he, he didn't want to encroach on her enjoyment of the short ribs. Right. Well, and then it like it turns it it does turn into this whole like cannibal narrative where essentially this is what he does mm-hmm. is he finds, you know, young single women who are alone because basically Noah, she's not her dad has passed away. She's not close to her mom. She has no other family. Her closest friend is Molly, mm-hmm. uh, which thank God for Molly. Everyone needs a friend like her. Right. In general, I love the authentic, like, female friendships in this film. No one's really shitty or catty. It, it's very real. It's like, okay, you do you, but... It's how what, it's how female friendships usually really are when you're an adult. I kind of feel like everybody is pretty authentic in this film. Yeah. Because, uh, shit, what's his name? Uh, Molly's... Paul. Paul. Later on in the film, he does what every single person who has ever, like... Had someone show up the cat, you know, all right, I'm coming to the rescue sort of situation and then see shit's popping off that he hears a gunshot and he's like, nope, I'm out. (laughs) And and you're like, okay, but you're going to turn back around and go back, right? No, he's like, I am out. I am a I am a lone man with a car. Yeah. What am I going to do? I am going to turn around and continue to be that lone man in a car. Yeah. I am not equipped to stop bullets with my mind or something. Right. Like, he doesn't do the action hero thing, and I no. find that so awesome. He does the thing you would actually do. If you were, if you show up at a house in the middle of nowhere and you hear gunshots, you're leaving. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. I'm like, all right, I'm, I love you, but no. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, this is what Steve does. He finds young single women who basically have no one and takes them to this really nice house. Oh, yeah. In the middle of nowhere. But, like, the basement has, like, all these, like, they're cells, but they're, the, they have, the, each one has, like, a toilet and a sink and, like, a fairly, like, nice little bed. They're carpeted. They're not shitty. I mean, yeah, they're, they're spacious. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do in there. It's not like they got a racquetball or something. Right, but, like, and the whole thing is he's part of this group of, from what I can tell, just men mm-hmm. who are fellow all they're all cannibals and they they're like oh um he's he finds these women keeps them alive for as long as possible because the fresher the meat the better Mm -hmm. and sells their parts to these guys 
something about those customers, though. I yeah. made a note about that. They all appear. We don't see any faces, but we see like people receiving packages and stuff. They're all. They all appear to be older white men. Yes, that's what I said. The customers appear to generally be depicted as older white men. I'm curious if they're eating the flesh of these young women to gain life force to attempt to extend their life and improve their health. I'm not sure. Or are they just doing the opposite of eat the rich? Well, because he Steve calls these guys the one percent of the one percent. Right. Like they could have anything they want. And this is one of the things that they want. Um, I do kind of feel like it's, this isn't necessarily just about the, the meat. Right. Because whenever there's this long, there's, it's not a super long scene, but there's a scene where we, we watch Steve. He's dancing around the most beautiful kitchen that I would fucking kill for. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's carving up what is very clearly a woman's leg, and he tender he's tenderizing it and packaging it. Vacuum sealing it. Vacuum yeah. sealing it. He's got all these boxes, but included with the meat are items that belonged to the woman in question. Mm-hmm. So, like, part, pieces of her underwear, um, sunglasses I saw in one, and, like, a picture of the girl with, like, her name on it. Mm-hmm. And I have kind of seen, as far as, like, the... Occasionally you'll go to like you'll go to the farmers market like the one that we have here in town mm-hmm. and some of the farmers who have you know um specialized in, in you know cattle or or pork or or even chickens they will occasionally have pictures of their animals. Yeah. Like this is the th- these are the animals that we've slaughtered most recently blah 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 blah. Right. But they don't also include like Bessie's bell. Right. You know, or that, whatever. Right. You know what I mean? It's it. So like I could understand including a picture, but it's when you start including things like their panties that yeah. it gets really creepy. And you're like, okay, this isn't just about the meat. This is also about subjugating women. In a way it, it well, I mean, not in a way, literally it sexualizes the whole process. Right. Which then is going to make you go f- from eight and a half years to a life sentence if anything goes it, by arm in tr- my ways. Right. It's treating women like meat, mm-hmm. like pieces of meat, literally. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that it's kind of weird being a horror fan and a foodie. Yes. Because I love Steve's Kitchen and I'm really impressed with like his technique when it comes to like the butchering and the preparation of the product. But it is still a per like it is still a person. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like... And I, there's this one scene where he comes back to the house after a jog and he cuts off a piece of what you think is Iberico ham. No. And then you, and then you see the tattoo and you're like, oh, that's a woman's calf. Yes. (laughs) That he has treated like Iberian ham. Iberico ham. Iberico ham. Yeah. Sorry. And I, I think part of it is it's, it, it also speaks to Sebastian Stan and his acting ability that, Steve is still kind of sexy through this whole process. Yeah. Yeah, I've got notes about that, too. Like, he's carving up a woman's leg to sell, or he's making... Like, there's at one point where Noah decides... I don't know. It's She sees something in a magazine that he gives her. Right. From and, a previous survivor. And it says, if you're reading this... He likes you. Use that. Yeah. Yeah. You keep your head on a swivel. Pay attention. Use what you can. Yeah. So, like, she asks him at one point, what does it taste like? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this other scene where he, you know, gets some, gets out a torso mm-hmm. and, you know, is butchering it and then, you know, puts it through a meat grinder and makes a meatball with it. 
And so like you're watching him do all this and you're like, this isn't right because that's a woman, but he's doing it while singing and dancing to pop music. And he's just clearly like really into the whole, like, again, very chefy techniques and doing things in a very Mm -hmm. like technical way, but he's still a cannibal. Like you have to remind yourself like every five to 10 minutes go, this is still a cannibal movie. I mean, I had that same thing back when we were watching Hannibal. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, wow, I really like that character. Oh, my God, that food looks delicious. (laughs) Oh, shit, it's people. Stop it. (laughs) Oh, man, poor George. Uh, He was kind of an asshole, though. Yeah. You know, whatever the case. Yeah, I have a note about the butchery. Also, can we talk for a moment about the Gaspar Noe style title card 33 minutes into the film? I know, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like, for the first 20 minutes, you don't know where this movie is going. Yeah, that's it. That's why when you get to the twist of him, you know, hey, we're going to go on vacation, but I'm not going to tell you where you're going. And like on the way there, she's like, oh, my phone doesn't work. Oh, the reception's bad here. They get to his house. Oh, my phone's still. I'm still not getting a signal. Oh, should the router go out? Oh, no, the router goes out all the time, blah, 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 blah. And like then he drugs her drink. Mm -hmm. And again, you think it's going to be like sex slave human trafficking and technically it is human trafficking in a way but like yeah a hard, a harder to trace version of that right so what are what are some of your thoughts uh let's see other than what i've shared uh original music by alex summers and supporting soundtrack the inc- soundtrack is good including and not limited to but including duran duran mm-hmm. blood orange vitamin string quartet the yeah yeah yeahs and many others but my favorite mm. is that scene you were describing when he was packaging everything up. That was Animotion with that banger of theirs, Obsession. Just seeing seeing Steve, seeing Sebastian Stan in in his likableness. Like I'm picturing it in my head now and he's just like and the doing thing his is, like fun dance motions. And I'm picturing it too when he's like doing little spins and stuff. He's, he's he like, like takes back the, sealing. He like takes her leg out of the dumbwaiter and just like does a twirl. And I'm like, what are you doing? But he's not. <laughs> Look. If if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I don't think he works a day in his life. I don't I, think I, so. Yeah, he. I mean, Molly ends up finding finding him through his wife's Facebook, and finds their house. And I don't know if you noticed the price of that house. That's a million dollar house. Yeah, not well, the one where he's doing the butchery, but the separate one where his wife and children live. Yeah, which I thought it was funny because earlier in the film, Molly says he's probably married, and it turns out he is. Yeah. Which she finds out at the end, and she's like, and he was married? <laughs> like, like, he was married? Yeah. Um, I do have another thing to bring up. Yeah, go for it. But, like, are, are we towards the tail end of, of the stuff about Fresh? Other than other than our summation on it. So I do want to... Okay. So there is a second instance where he brings... It's clear that he's more into Noah than he is to any of his other victims. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the main things is when, when she, when Noah is talking to Penny, who's in the next cell over, she says, I can't believe I slept with him. And Penny's like, you slept with him? Like, that's unusual. So apparently that's unusual. He doesn't normally sleep with his victims. But then the fact that she expressed an interest, even if it was a feigned interest in human meat and what it tastes like, uh, he initially brings her up and he serves her, you know, the meatball that's made Mm -hmm. out of a woman named Hope. Um... Just taste the hope. Yeah. Um, with what looked like handmade pasta. Yes. Um, but he decides to basically do like another dinner date kind of thing with her and, you know, 
brings her a dress, brings her upstairs and gives her um, pate. Mm-hmm. And again, she's like, who she's like, who is this? Is this hope? And he's like, no, this is Melissa. And yeah, the, the second thing he gives her, as far as we know, the second thing he gives her is a slice of, of human breast. Mm-hmm. Now, what she doesn't know is that this is because he ca- ended up capturing Molly from Molly trying to find Noah. It's it's Noah's breast or uh, not Noah's breast. Um, Molly's breast. Right. Because he even does this this smirk and he's like, it may even taste familiar. And you're like, dude, calm down. But I was curious. I was looking at it because he mentions he's like, it's breast meat. So it's it's a woman's breast. Yes. Or it's just like a slice of it. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't think you can eat a human breast in the same way that you could eat a chicken or a turkey breast. Right. Because those are muscle. This is this is the subcutaneous fat. I Yeah. And, I looked and into it. And yeah. Yeah, there's no meat in in my breasts. Like it, they're just they're mostly fat, and then there is like some ducks and like lobules mm-hmm. for like if you do end up you know having a baby, that's because of the, like the milk production and everything is in there. But other than that, that's it. Yeah, there's no meat in here. Like so, it wouldn't be it just wouldn't be good, you know. I guess I'd be in the seasoning. See, why am I even thinking about how, trying to figure out how to season there's it? Not, you know, twist a lemon. You I, know, I don't know. It, it, but the, it, there, there's no meat. There's no meat in my tits. So what you're saying is, butter, garlic, lemon, and thyme isn't going to fix the fact no, that there's no meat. No, because it's just fat. Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you would not eat just a big block of fat from a, from a pig or a cow. There literally is lardo. Okay, there's still would, some would, meat would that's part of that though. It's pretty much there's no meat on it. You just cut these white thin strips of okay, white block and then you like sear it and then you know what it. I mean. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. But look at a cross. Look at a, a diagram. I did. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't look appetizing. It, okay, so it it kind of reminded me of a wider, flatter cut top of uh, roasted garlic. Okay, the way that's, it was sectioned out, and that's yeah. that's that's what I kind of saw. And then I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Speaking of things that aren't edible, towards when she does her little seduction mm. and gets him on the bed and bites his dick. I'm pretty sure she bit it off. I think I don't know if she bit it off or like just I don't know if she bit it all the way off, but she definitely bit it hard. And I'm watching this and I'm just like, yes, bitch, bite that dick. Give him a taste of his own fucking medicine. Show him what it's like to be eaten. Yeah. And then she smears toothpaste in his fucking eyes. I just fucking love it. Yeah, bought her some time. Oh my god, I love it. I love Noah so much. Did do some stupid things. Yes. Because I'm sorry, you don't... I would never go on vacation with someone that I had not been dating that long, that had not met my friends, including my best friend, mm-hmm. and won't tell me where we're going. Yeah, no. No. no that's, that's... I a- need to know how to pack. Right. I mean, you know, he even he even said, "I know I didn't tell you where we're going, but this place has got like a hot this tub." This place has got a hot tub, so I hope you brought a swimsuit. Like, well, if you had told me where we were going, maybe I could have prepared. Yeah, Dick. Sorry. Continue. What are you, so? What are your thoughts? Well, before I get to my thoughts, I do want to tell you something that may help or hurt your feelings on this movie. Okay. Also from that Leisure video, which I thought was fantastic. Um, she referenced a 2017 writer's expose regarding body brokers and non-transplant tissue banks. So these are separate from the, like, like super duper regulated, like organ and tissue transplant folks. So they're loosely regulated at that. 
The heart of the matter is that there is no solid federal or state regulations over the sale of cadavers and body parts explicitly explicitly for use in research and education. You don't have to specify what kind of research or education. Additionally, almost anyone can dissect and sell human body parts regardless of expertise. Oh, and there's a big market and minimal tracking. So that's, I guess, a hard truth to swallow. In other words, people are packing and shipping body parts already, supposedly for education and research. Right. But if your research is, hmm, does this taste good? Then that's that's not research. That's that's no, that's not that's not what you're supposed to do with it. That's fair. But I just wanted to bring that out to you before before we got our final notes before on before we wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Vac- vacuum pack it. So what what are you gonna what are, what's your rating for this film? I gotta scroll through my seventeen sections of notes. <laughs> okay, here we are. It was an interesting experience for me with this movie, given my love of horror and food. Uh, much like you, you know, it, it was challenging. Not not like scary challenging. It was one of those movies where I had to. I felt like I had to keep reminding myself, "Hey, this is a that Noah's in danger." I'm like, "Yeah, but Steve's so nice." Oh, that pate crostini looks so good. Oh God, no, it's not. It's people. Yeah, like like constantly Stop. having to kind of like shake yourself awake, going, "No, no, 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 no." It's hard. It's so hard to dislike Steve. Like even at the end. Even at his bitter, bitter end of the film, I'm like... Because it does cycle back around where he does the same shit to... He's doing the same shit to Noah that Chad did at the beginning where she rejects him and he's like, you bitch, I'm going to fucking kill you. Right. Like, the the mask goes away. I mean, the the cast as a whole paired with the exceptional writing, the direction, it, it all delivered a fun and satisfactory... Satisfactory. Fun and satisfying cautionary tale. Yeah. And a feast for the senses. I yes. give it four out of five Scullies. I also gave it a four out of five. I It's just, it spoke to me on so many levels. Because mm-hmm. um, you've got the openings, the opening 20 minutes of the movie where you, as, as, a, as a woman who's dated in, you know, modern dating, you right. know, in the post-internet you know, post e harmony and match.com world. Explosion. Right. With Bumble and Hinge and I, I de- everything else. Yeah. I Plenty identified with Noah quite yeah. a bit. I love that the female characters feel real. They feel like real people. It's not just like catty bitches the way you see in a lot of stuff. I saw a lot of Molly in you. Oh my God. Yes. Like reverse image searching that picture going, mm mm. I no. don't know how to. Do I can show that. you that. But <laughs> I just learned like a few months ago. So but yeah, I would 100% be that person who's like, I, d- I don't necessarily like, I get some people not having social media or like not having all the social media, but not having any is a little odd. Like even a LinkedIn or something. I right. Mean. He has nothing. Um, but like overall, I really, I really enjoyed it. The music is good. And again, there's just like something weirdly charming. Sebastian Stan himself is just so fun and charming and is just a sweet guy that that can't help but carry over into his characters Mm -hmm. and that happens with i feel like a little bit with steve as well yeah because even when we get his heel turn he's still being like very nice and very sweet and you know it's like look this this is the reality that you're in yeah so it can either be a relatively pleasant existence or it can be very awful yeah so before we officially wrap up, I do have, um, I have a new segment. Okay. 
This is Tia's unanswered questions. Okay. Because occasionally, when you watch films analytically, mm-hmm. and for, for, you know, the purpose of critiquing them for a show or whatever, you end up with questions that you didn't necessarily think about as a casual watcher or, mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. Right. Um, so one question I have is in regards to uh, Ravenous. Mm-hmm. Do you think Boyd was already starting to turn into a Wendigo before he arrived at Fort Spencer? Because and he just all, didn't know it? Because of all the blood that he consumed from his captain that ran into his mouth? Yeah, because he, when he's at, he's at the bottom of that pile of corpses in the uh, the Mexican fort, the blood from his compatriots was running into his mouth. And while he did spit out some of it, he couldn't spit out all of it. And he did say he felt like he doesn't know where the, the sudden burst of strength to fight back came from. And he asked Calhoun about it later. Like you said when you ate the when you ate the guy that you suddenly felt stronger. Like is that like it's cure? It's like it's already in his brain, right? Well, the Wendigo legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis. Some psychiatrists consider it a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh and fear of becoming a cannibal. Hmm. Ironically, this psychosis occurs in people living around. You know, the region that, that you know, the legend takes place. Right. Um, it usually develops in the winter, the psychosis. Uh, in individuals isolated in heavy snow for long periods, initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, vomiting. Subsequently, the individual de- develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo. And so a lot of people with Wendigo psychosis actually are like going, oh, no, I can't turn into this. I don't want to turn into this. So it's possible he may actually already be thinking about that. And being afraid that he's this monster who's also, you know, a, a craven coward, you know, you know, not proud of what he what he did. But it, you know, here's the thing. If you live to see the ne- another day, you're already winning the battle. Yeah. Um, so I do have a couple of un- other unanswered questions that they're, they're all in regards to fresh. I promise I don't have write ups for all of those. No, I. OK. I just got to read some of my own cut content. Sorry. <laughs> it's OK. So do you think that Steve has a signal jammer in his car and in the house? Possibly. Because it strikes me that that would be, that's the only way he can guarantee that they aren't able to text anybody until he has them where he wants them. Yeah. Because, I don't know, it just seems, because we do see later on, his phone seems to work just fine whenever he's at the house. Mm-hmm. So clearly, whatever problem she was having, he does not. Yeah. Um. Another question that I don't know if I necessarily want the answer to, um... Steve mentions that the first time he ate human flesh, he was about 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this, he, he tells th- that he's a plastic surgeon is what he tells Noah, yeah. Noah his job is. Um, do you think he went to med school to learn to be a better butcher? It's entirely possible. Or it, it may be that he intended to, you know, was succeed, always planning on going to med school to succeed and, and then went, I could do that and work these insanely long hours and all this other stuff and then deal with all this crap. Or, I could do this. I could get paid what I would make in a year in a week. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, uh, so he, they only eat women. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't the meat of human women be full of hormones from taking birth control? Possibly. Because all most women that I know started taking birth control, um, usually the pill, mm-hmm. uh, when you're about like 15. And... These women are all about, let's say, 25, 28. 
So they've been taking it already for 10 to 13 years. So that's 10 to 13 years of additional hormones. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's just a, a thought that I had. Um, my last thought. Um, so both of these movies are directed by women. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they have... Do you think it's because women just inherently know what it's like to be treated like a piece of meat? Yes. So they are better able to tell these stories? Yes, absolutely. Because um, I'm they- not saying there isn't like a meat market when it comes to um, when it comes to men, as uh, far as like the dating world goes. Shit. No, no joke. Be, be me during the last big sexual revolution in Japan. It was the first time in my life anybody ever grabbed my crotch in a club. Like, what is going on? And it it felt awful. Yeah. But historically, um, women are more often treated like, like property. Right. So it's not very difficult to then, you know, kind of cant that over to yeah. treating women like food. I mean, if you can treat a person like property and you can treat it like you could throw it away because it's property, you can throw it away or you can make better use of it and make a profit on it. Right. Um, I mean, should I even heard the dating scene called the meat market? Yeah, same. It literally is an independent meat market. Right. I, I think it's really smart and brilliant point of views from both films uh, really tapping into that. Yeah. And uh, I think the yeah. I think being that Fresh was written and directed by women, mm-hmm. I think that lends an, an entirely whole unique perspective. Yeah. Um, that I really appreciated. Um, so, yeah. I think that's going to do it for us for this week. Yeah. Part of the thing with us doing bi-weekly releases is that episodes are just probably going to be a little bit longer. Yeah. And I hope you all are okay with that. A longer episode episodes tend to do pretty well. Yeah, that's that's true. So yeah, thank you for sticking with us mm-hmm. and uh, we appreciate everyone that listens. Y'all are the best. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can also uh, check out our website. We are h2horrorcast.com. There is uh, a link there to our Twitter. There's also the episode postings, blog posts, which we may start doing more of. Um, there's a link to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. We are patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, that goes towards uh, when we have to rent things or when we have to, you know, buy new equipment. And uh Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. If you um, can't support us in, by being a patron, we totally get it. Uh, you can support us in other ways. One of the best ways you can support us uh, is by rating and reviewing us on platforms where that is an option. Specifically, anything like Apple and Spotify. Yeah. Those are the two top ones where if you haven't already rated us, if you could please do that, it really helps us out. Because yeah. it gets us, you know, higher up in the algorithms. If we have a lot of good ratings, we're more likely to be recommended, you know, to other people listening to various podcasts and stuff. So yeah. it just it just legitimately helps us out. Um, you don't have to switch platforms if you're listening on something else. No, but. no. We're just saying, like, if you listen to us on a platform where rating and reviewing is an option, mm-hmm. if you haven't already done that, if you could, that would be amazing. 
And then you can also just like recommend us to people that you think might be into this. Yeah. I think we're kind of trying and kind of go with this style of, of format going forward. It feels strangely more structured, yet also more laid back. A little bit, yeah. And I think it's more laid back because we have a plan instead of just going, okay, I got my notes, let's go. Right. It, that's, <laughs> and that's the other thing that, that releasing bi-weekly is going to give us. It's going to give us the opportunity to make things make more sense. Does that make, does that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm tired and I need to make dinner. So, <laughs> and yeah, I hear you on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll help. For anyone who's curious, we're having breakfast casserole. Yeah, it's gonna be delightful. It's delicious. <laughs> no humans involved. No, there's it's turkey sausage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so until next time, I'm Tia, and I'm still David. And stay spooky, friends. But music for this episode is "Save Us Now" by Shane Ivers. Our artwork is by Catherine Nixon. <laughs>